very good morning to you all. Will you please pray with me? Loving Lord, in these moments, as we hear and consider your written word, would you please send your living word to us? Open our hearts to hear what you would do in us today. Please enliven my words for your glory. Amen. Would you please take 30 seconds to have a brief conversation with your neighbor and tell each other about the last time you spent a night unable to sleep? 30 seconds. It's amazing to me how a group of people know when 30 seconds have passed and you just (laughs) quietly calm down. Can you remember the last time you tossed and turned your way through the night, wishing that morning would just hurry up and come already? Maybe you were having trouble sleeping, uh, but you didn't want to just get up and, well, be up in the middle of the night, so you laid there and stared at the ceiling Uh, Or you tried some breathing exercises, or my favorite trick for turning off my mind to go back to sleep, I try to think of a flower for every letter of the alphabet, or a fruit, or an animal. So if you're bored in the rest of this sermon, there you go. (laughs) Or maybe you were awake because you were ill or in pain, And lying there was just physically difficult for you. And at least the morning would bring another dose of medicine and the routine of a new day to take your mind off of your pain. Or maybe you were so excited for what was going to happen the next day that the night was unending and you just couldn't sleep until you finally drifted off one hour before the alarm. Have you ever been desperate for morning to come when you weren't even in bed? I recently spent a night in a freezing airport terminal in Manchester, England, trying to sleep on a hard chair, being woken up every 15 minutes by an announcer telling me to report unattended baggage, twice by toddlers who had escaped their travel leashes to crawl onto my row of seats, and once by the sudden panic that my suitcase had been stolen while I was sleeping, only to wake up and see that my feet were propped up on it. (laughs) Seven hours of this agony. And even though I was exhausted, I was so glad when morning came because it meant the coffee shop would open and I could get something warm to drink. And then not too long after that, the ticket counter would open and I could hand over my suitcase. And eventually a gate would be assigned and I could get on the plane and get one step closer to Houghton. That journey last week took me 42 hours. I learned a lot about waiting. 
We're dwelling in the Psalms this summer, and today's psalm invites us to learn how to wait well. Uh, Waiting means a lot of things in the scriptures, and I'm going to invite you to turn to Psalm 130. If you don't have your own Bible with you, either print copy or on the phone, there are Bibles in the pew, Psalm 130. I spent the semester in my preaching class insisting that when my students give out a passage of scripture, they give people time to find it. So that's why I'm still talking, Psalm 130. Please turn there and follow with me. This psalm offers us another image of being eager for the sunrise. The psalm describes the poet's longing for God in these terms. I wait for the Lord more than watchmen wait for the morning. Watchmen in Israel were stationed high on a watchtower or at a checkpoint overlooking a strategic road. They patrolled the streets of the city or guarded the gates of the palace all night long. And for them, the first rays of the morning sun meant that warmth and food and sleep were nearly theirs. They could get off their feet and quit peering into the darkness and stop listening for every little sound. And they could retire with the confidence that they had kept everything safe for another night and served their master well. But here, our poet wants the Lord to show up even more than those watchmen waiting for their morning. Why is the psalmist waiting for God in the first place? Because he is in deep distress. The psalm opens with one of the most beautiful lines of lament in all of Scripture. Read with me now. Out of the depths I cry to you, Lord. Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to my cry for mercy. Let's try that again. Read aloud with me together. Out of the depths I cry to you, Lord. Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to my cry for mercy. You might not know it, but you just told God to sit up and pay attention to you. We said it in the words of scripture, but that's the the impulse of these kinds of cries in lament psalms. Just what these depths that the psalmist is talking about are unstated. The word in Hebrew, depths, often refers to the waters of the deep sea, which for an ancient person was a terribly frightening place of chaos and darkness. These waters signify the deepest distress, that state of panic or despair that some of us have been plunged into at one time or another, that rock in your stomach when your bank account is suddenly empty and payday is two weeks away. Or when you decided to wait until the night before to study for Dr. Dirk's Old Testament exam, and then you realized there was not enough time left, and you were going to fail. Or when the doctor calls and asks, are you alone, or can you find someone to be with you? Because she has bad news about that shadow on the x-ray. Or when your water breaks, but your due date is still ten weeks away. Out of the depths, 
of our panic and chaos, a cry for help comes clawing its way up out of our throats, straight into the listening ears of God. These Hebrew verb forms, hear, be attentive, in verses 1 and 2. They can sometimes be translated with exclamation points, and I think that's the sense that the psalmist is using. The psalmist knows he will be heard, but in his desperation, he cannot be calm and reverential. Instead, he demands that the Lord listen. Pay attention, God. Hear me, won't you please? Lord, are you listening? Please, God, mercy, you've just got to save me. Like many of the lament psalms, this one preserves very little dignity for the speaker, who's overwhelmed by his suffering and will not be ignored by his God. He has nothing else to lose, and so he assaults the doors of heaven with less than the usual measure of reverence and decorum that you and I have been taught to bring to our prayer life. After the initial eruption of despair that sends him pleading... The psalmist seems to realize where his pleas have led him into the very court of the holy God, where he is immediately aware of his own sinfulness. Read with me verses 3 and 4. Again, would you practice reading this out loud with me? If you, Lord, kept a record of sins, Lord, who could stand? But with you, there is forgiveness so that we can, with reverence, serve you. We sort of expect this turn towards sinfulness, don't we? I mean, suffering does have a way of turning our attention to our own shortcomings. I think of the man I read about who confessed to his priest, I deserve this cancer because I was taking life for granted. Or the friend who asked me, what if God made me infertile because he knew I wasn't patient enough to be a mother? Or the student years ago who said to me, if I had only tried harder to be a morning person, then I wouldn't have depression right now. Or the boy who whispered to my pastor friend a few weeks ago, right before she started the funeral service, I told my mom I hated her, and now she's dead. Did I kill her? In moments of calamity, we all have a terrifying suspicion that we deserve exactly what is happening to us. But astonishingly, this is not the direction the psalmist goes. He is fully aware of his sinfulness, but even more confident in his God. This God inspires such confidence because he refuses to play the divine bookkeeper keeping lists of our sins and whether we have paid off the debt. If you, Lord, kept a record of sins, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness so that we can, with reverence, serve you. Please notice the order of action there. The psalmist is forgiven and then enters into worship and service of God. God does not wait to forgive us before we have proven that we deserve it. 
The psalmist is so assured of this forgiveness and so certain that his failings will not keep God from coming to him in his distress that he doesn't dwell at all on the question of why he is suffering. He just wants God to show up and save him, and he is sure God will. So he settles in to wait and to worship the God who forgives. On a side note, as an Old Testament professor, I cannot help but point out to you the location of this astounding confidence in God's forgiveness. We are reading a text in the Old Testament. Jesus Christ will not be born into the manger for hundreds of years yet, but this Israelite poet knew already that God forgives first, before ever we have deserved that forgiveness. We have undergone a subtle but important shift by the time we get to verse 5. The desperation of that demanding cry from the depths has settled into confident anticipation. And so in verses 5 and 6, he waits and waits and hopes and waits some more. I wait for the Lord, my whole being waits. And in his word, I put my hope. I wait for the Lord more than the watchmen wait for morning. More than watchmen wait for the morning. And what is the nature of this waiting on God? Is it that waiting of the watchmen? Yes, that eager waiting, that longing for something that always comes. That is the real point of the analogy of the watchmen. Morning always comes. The watchman can take his final circuit around the wall on his aching feet because he knows morning is here, almost. He knows that it is coming. Makes me think of our children, or at least Miriam now, and Joseph when he was much younger, when the grandparents were coming to visit from Colorado at Christmas time or the other grandparents from Kansas City. Two or three days of driving for them, two or three days of cleaning and preparation for us. We had cleaned the house from top to bottom and baked everything in sight. We had wrapped all the presents and decorated everything, and there's nothing left to do but wait. And the morning they're supposed to arrive, Miriam wakes up with these words on her lips. Are Grammy and Grandpa here yet? Are they here yet? When are they coming? How much longer until Grammy and Grandpa get here? Why aren't they here yet, Mama? Throughout the day, what is taking them so long? Where are they? Text them and find out how much longer it will be. And when I say, well, they stopped at the Cuba cheese shop and they'll be here in about an hour, call them, please, make them go faster. Mama, hurry. When will they get here? By the time they arrive, the children are practically vibrating with anticipation. But there is not a drop of fear that Grammy and Grandpa will not come. Joseph and Miriam know they will arrive. And when they come, it will be wonderful. And so it is with waiting on this Lord. Notice what this Lord brings with him. The phrasing is brilliant, but again, very subtle. This Lord, the poet is awaiting, comes bringing three things. 
With him there is forgiveness in verse 4. But also with him there is unfailing love. This is chesed in verse 7. The fiercely loyal love that you may have heard me speak of before. I actually hear there's a pool going on to see if I can preach a sermon without using the word chesed. I haven't achieved it yet, but it's not my fault. It's in the text everywhere, so... And finally, with this Lord, there is full redemption. Or in the Hebrew, great power to redeem. What an entourage! No wonder the poet hopes in the word of this God from the depths of despair and chaos. This coming Lord calls us into hope and confidence, because this Lord can and will bring about our salvation. This coming Lord forgives and never fails to love and has power to redeem anything, and therefore we need not be afraid that our sin will keep us bound or keep us apart from God. Another important but subtle shift occurs just about here, moving into verse 5. The psalmist started out speaking directly to God. But from verse 5 on, he is speaking to others. He begins testifying, if you will, in verse 5. I wait for the Lord, my whole being waits. I wait for the Lord, and in his word I put my hope. But he isn't content to leave it there with his own personal experience of nighttime vigil. He emerges into the light of day with a call on his lips. Oh, Israel, hope in the Lord. In this short psalm, we get a fairly tidy summary of what actually happens when the gospel takes hold of a person's life. Calling out to the Lord from the desperation of sinful chaos leads next into the assurance of forgiveness and reverent worship which leads to longing and waiting for God to come, and then to proclamation, calling others to hope in the Lord who redeems. It seems important to me that we pause here for a moment to notice there is no final resolution in this psalm. The Lord is awaited and trusted, but as far as this psalmist is concerned, The Lord's arrival and redemption of Israel is still in the future. In light of this, the final verse is quite poignant. As the psalmist waits for a God he knows will come, he joins, asks others to join him in his hoping. Hope is always a risk anyway, but to invite others into your hope takes another level of confidence. If the hope is unfulfilled and you're the only one hoping, it's difficult. If the hope is unfulfilled and you've invited others to join you, you look like a fool. But you see, I don't think that despite that risk, hoping and waiting for the Lord are meant to be solo activities. I know that in some difficult seasons of my own life, I would not have been able to sustain my hope in Christ on my own. It was the hope of my friends, or my parents, or my praying grandparents, 
and their confidence that God was forgiving and loving me, redeeming me and my circumstances that helped me to cry out to God from my depths and to look again toward the dawn of morning, as it were. One of the great gifts of waiting on the Lord, I have found, is the discovery of the companions God sends me while I wait. I have learned to ask, will you please hope for me for a little while while we wait? And likewise, I have been able sometimes to say to others, I will hold your hope for you for a little while until you are strong enough to take it up again. And here we come to the connection with our New Testament text. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, Paul and Timothy are writing to this church that they have poured their hearts out to. And again, let me read it for you. You don't have to turn to it this time. I'll read it for you. Since we have that same spirit of faith, we also believe and therefore speak because we know that the one who raised the Lord Jesus from the dead will also raise us with Jesus and present us with you to himself. All this is for your benefit so that the grace that is reaching more and more people may cause thanksgiving to overflow to the glory of God. Therefore, we do not lose heart. Though outwardly we are wasting away, inwardly we are being renewed day by day. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. Since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. These believers in Corinth are like us. They have already learned of the redemption Christ brings through his resurrection. But also like us, they are still awaiting his second coming. Waiting for the completion of his saving work, which includes the final resurrection of all believers. Paul and Timothy could not envision the glory of that day without the presence of the Corinthian brothers and sisters. In fact, the extension of God's grace to more and more people as they waited kept them from losing heart. As we wait, if we want to wait well, we will invite others to wait in hope with us. Now, if you would allow me, I'd like to ask sort of a pointed question right now. Returning to Psalm 130, how might we pray this psalm now? Now that we know Christ has already come to redeem Israel and grafted us into that tree, when we say, along with the psalmist, that we are, quote, waiting on the Lord, what do we mean by that these days? I hear that phrase used quite a, quite a few different ways, and all of them are legitimate. I think sometimes we mean that we are waiting for direction from God, for confirmation or guidance on a particular decision that we are facing. 
Just the other day, a friend asked me about a decision I was trying to make, and I responded with, I don't really have clarity right now. I'm waiting on the Lord. Sometimes when we say, I'm waiting on the Lord, we mean that our prayers for a certain situation have not been answered yet, and it's kind of a holy way of saying, I'm trying to be patient with God. (laughs) Sometimes we mean simply that we are trying to live in a posture of service and openness to the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. And these, as I said, are all legitimate But I think we're missing one. I wonder if there is another more specific way in which we should also be waiting for the Lord. Do we ever mean, as I think the psalmist did and as I know Paul and Timothy did, that we are waiting on the Lord to come? Actually to arrive. Yes, with forgiveness and love and redemption in his luggage, but actually to come be with us. Do we really believe the Lord is coming again? And if we do, how might that shape your hope, my waiting, our life together here in Allegheny County? If we actually begin to think of our Lord as someone on his way, just like Joseph and Miriam when they are waiting for grandma and grandpa. If our waiting on the Lord isn't only a spiritual euphemism or a metaphor, but actual waiting for the imminent arrival of the Lord who always comes and comes bringing forgiveness and love, and redemption. Could we enter the mind of the eager child who says, Come, Lord Jesus, hurry up! These are not actually questions I'm going to answer for you today. I look forward to what the Holy Spirit might do in your imagination. How might your life be shaped by living in active waiting for the Lord's actual arrival? Amen.